0: Welcome to Our True Colors, hosted by Shauna Gann. Join her as she explores the challenges of being a racial riddle, an ethnic enigma, and a cultural conundrum. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to Our True Colors. I'm so glad that you're here and thank you for joining the conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Shauna Gann, a certified diversity executive. I'm also the founder and CEO of True Culture Coaching and Consulting, a firm that uses organizational psychology and learning theory to support you and your efforts in strengthening your workplace culture through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm a business psychologist specializing in this area of DEI, but I am not a clinical psychologist. I'm also not a sociologist. I think it's important to make those things clear. I don't have all the answers. Well, no one really has all the answers. I'm here as your host to facilitate conversations and to bring in experts and other folks who can share their experiences with us. That way, we can have a solid foundation on which to learn about each other and to better understand our varying perspectives. I do share my beliefs from time to time, as well as my lived experiences, and I will always try to provide support with resources as well. Those will be in the show notes for you to check out. Every once in a while, in some of the earlier episodes of Season 1, you might hear reference to Tribe and True. That was the previous name of Our True Colors. You can find out more about the story behind the switch to OTC in Season 2. That episode is called What's in a Name? Check it out. The purpose of this Start Here episode of Our True Colors, or OTC, is to explain what the show is about. The premise... It is also going to be used to explain my approach to certain topics. I'll share some of my beliefs and understandings throughout the episodes as you go on through the seasons, but in this particular episode, I wanna make sure that I go over some very specific terms or vocabulary that I use because I think it's important that you have an idea of where I'm coming from. Language is always changing, just as society continues to change. That may mean some updates as we go along the way, but for now, this is a great way to start. I'm a lifelong learner and a scholar practitioner. I am more than welcome new insights or perspectives to consider. So please send your ideas my way. So what's the show about? Well, OTC is meant to be a platform to share thoughts and express ideas. It's a place to be heard and to be understood. It isn't just about being biracial or multiracial or mixed, although we do talk about that quite a bit. Though some might describe me as being racially ambiguous, I say that about myself too. I am not biracial or multiracial. I am, in fact, a monoracial Black woman with a rich multiethnic heritage. And like most folks, I am still on my identity journey. Does that journey ever really end? Though I'm your host, OTC isn't meant to be just my voice. Every season, I invite a new co host to join me, someone who can relate to the experiences we talk about but who can also offer perspective that's different from mine. Some of our differences are generational. Some are difference in gender, racial or ethnic background, and even nationality. We compare small town to big city experiences, too. For example, in season one, my co-host is Shannon Edwards. She identifies as biracial with one black parent and one white parent, and we are of different generational cohorts, she and I. In season two, you'll meet my older brother, Jason Mitchum. We share genes, but not childhood memories, since we didn't meet until we were both near adulthood. He brings a different gender perspective to the conversation. Here are different points of view from my Canadian co-host, Carmen Watson, in Season 3. I met Carmen in the previous season when she talked about her family story of discovery and reunion. Season 4 is co-hosted by Yolandi Hamilton. She is of Jamaican and Polish descent and lives in a small town in Michigan, as opposed to where I live in the D.C. metro area. Each of these co-hosts are wonderful, but I've also invited guests to join the conversation and share their expertise and their lived experiences as well. Folks who, as I often say, somehow fit everywhere, but simultaneously feel a longing to belong somewhere. I'm talking about folks who are multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural, but also folks who might be expats or third culture people or transracial adoptees, for example. I've also included people who are in interracial relationships and parents of multiracial children. You might be interested in this show if you are a diversity, equity, and inclusion, or maybe if you're an academic or a leader in your organization, or perhaps you're just someone who wants to hang out with us and learn about the experiences of people who are different than yourself. I'll talk about these varying perspectives in a bit, but the point is, you're all welcome here. Now, let's talk about what our true culture is not. It's okay and it's natural to vent or complain about lived experiences that have impacted us in some negative way. But this is not a place to put down others as a group or as individuals. I want our true colors to be a source of energy, of positive energy, and a place of support where we can come and welcome each other's thoughts and opinions in the spirit of inclusion. It's definitely not meant to be an echo chamber. It's very important to me that listeners joining me at OTC have a sense of belonging. That's the main premise of the show. Every voice is welcome here, even differences of opinion. It's all part of the conversation. Okay, so with all of that explained, what does it actually mean to be racially ambiguous? Have you ever asked anyone, or perhaps been asked, any questions like these? What are you? How mixed are you? What's your background? What's your ethnicity? Do you always have a tan? What are you mixed with? Where are you from? Where are you from originally? Those questions don't necessarily come from a place of malintent, or rudeness, or prejudice, or racism, or anything like that. Most of the time, people are just coming from a place of curiosity. It is human nature, after all, to be curious, and we live in a world where lots of people see race as a binary. And actually, our brains are wired for bias. That's right, bias. It just is. It's actually how we as humans that are part of the animal kingdom have learned to survive. But this sorting of people and things can become pretty problematic when we start talking about social categorization. It can lead to harmful in-group and out-group dynamics and thinking that people are either this or they're not. Well, guess what? I'm here to tell you that it's not like that. Race is not as clear as black and white, literally or figuratively. It's important to note that the show is not about being black or white, or even black and white. Racial ambiguity is not code for, quote, mixed, unquote. The word ambiguous means unclear or inexact. Or, according to lexico, it means being open to more than one interpretation. You might be perceived as racially ambiguous, or sometimes people say ethnically ambiguous, if people tend to have a hard time pinpointing your racial ancestry. You might perceive someone else as being racially or ethnically ambiguous when you find yourself wondering, quote, what they are, unquote, or maybe where they're from. Our True Colors focuses on identity. As mentioned earlier, we could be talking about people who identify as being biracial, multiracial, or even monoracial, but with physical or cultural characteristics that make their ancestry hard to determine. An example could be someone like me, who identifies as being monoracial or having one race. But my skin color and my other physical features, which are called phenotypes, make it hard for people to figure out my racial or ethnic background. By the way, there's lots of ways to be multiracial. On this show, nothing is ever just black and white. We recognize other aspects of racial identities, such as being transracial. One example of this is when a person is adopted by a family that does not share the same ethnic ancestry as they do. It's also important to consider that there are many layers or intersections, which include age, gender, sexuality, socioeconomic status, and so on. When these intersections include identities that have been historically marginalized, this is called intersectionality. Other things, like our professions, where we've lived, those things have shaped us and continue to shape us into the people that we are and continue to become, and they bring us our many lenses through which we view and approach life. There's so much more to us than our physical characteristics, let alone our skin color. I've used a lot of terms so far, so let's take this time to break down some of these a little bit more. Intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the 1980s. It has to do with our multifaceted selves, but very specifically, it has to do with the intersections of identities held by marginalized groups of people. You can think of people from marginalized communities as those who have likely experienced some form of discrimination or social exclusion because of the identities that they hold. Merriam-Webster defines intersectionality as, quote, the complex, cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, or classism, and how these things combine and overlap or intersect, especially in the experiences of marginalized individuals or groups. Check out the show notes to learn more about intersectionality. Here are some other terms that folks sometimes use interchangeably, and I want to explain each one and how I typically use them on the show. Some of these words are race, ethnicity, ancestry, nationality, heritage, and culture. But for this Start Here episode, we're going to focus on four of them. Race, ethnicity, culture, and nationality. Race is defined in Merriam-Webster as a category of humankind that shares certain distinctive physical traits. You'll often hear me talk about those physical traits, and I describe them as phenotypes. Or you might hear me say something like, someone presents phenotypically a certain way. Presenting, in this case, means how they look, not how they purposefully portray themselves. The American Sociological Association explains race as referring to physical differences that groups and cultures consider socially significant. Keyword, socially. Race is socially constructed. Some say politically constructed. And it doesn't have anything to do with our genes or what's inside of us. Check out the Human Genome Project to learn more. You can find a link in the show notes. Anyway, no matter what color you are, what color your hair is, how your hair type is, your eye color, however you look, we are human beings. And we actually have more in common, genetically speaking, than we know. So, why race? How did it come about? Time for a history lesson. Colonization has been around since the 1400s, probably even before that. But finding new lands to claim really took off in the 1800s. Anthropology and ethnography began to explode, with works by Darwin writing about evolution in his publication, The Origin of Species. J.C. Pritchard writing about, quote, savage races, unquote. Or in 1864, when W. Winwood Reed published his book called Savage Africa, in which he wrote the following. England and France will rule Africa. Africans will dig the ditches and water the deserts. It will be hard work, and the Africans will probably become extinct. We must learn to look at the result with composure. It illustrates the beneficent law of nature that the weak must be devoured by the strong. End of quote. It was during this time that the scientists and scholars began to try to categorize people into races. In 1866, Frederick Farr wrote about the aptitudes of races, in which he categorized people into three groups. Though in his paper he did admit that ethnology had not yet advanced enough to say that his determination was final, he described the three groups as being savage, semi-civilized, and civilized. He considered Africans, indigenous, and, well, pretty much all people of color, except the Chinese, to be savage. He considered the Chinese to be semi-civilized, basically on their way to civilization, but then suffering from what he called arrested development. Lastly, the civilized group of Europeans and Aryans and the Semitic people were considered to be superior to all. Enter Eugenics. The dictionary says that eugenics is the practice of or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of the human population, done through sterilization in most cases. This would be done in order to improve the population's genetic composition. Well, y'all, since the scholars had somehow concluded that the people belonging to what they considered civilized groups were superior in their minds, there was a push to breed a better species of human from the so-called superior race. and. Guess where the German Nazis got their ideas for eugenics? That's right. American eugenics. It was the model, the very model for the Nazis. It's a wild thought, but consider this. By the early 1900s, eugenics was pumped out at full throttle through American colleges, and it was taught as a legitimate science. Check out raceequitytools.org for more interesting facts about this and other developments of racial categories and also the implications of these categories that point to the invention of the concept of race in order to justify those deemed civilized i.e white as being superior and granted the gift from god as manifest destiny to rule superior over the land (laughs) it's deep y'all listen people are just people But certain folks took it upon themselves to decide which people were better than others and which could hardly even be considered a person at all. Or, you know, a fraction of a person. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? The rest is history. And unfortunately, it's also a lot of our present. Science has proven that there are no, and I mean zero, genetic markers to determine differences in race, let alone superiority. There never was such a thing. But some anthropologists back in the day, checking out people in places that were very different than what they were used to, deemed certain people to be uncivilized. And that's how race and therefore racism was born. Now, race is a heavy word, and I just gave you the background and why it's considered socially and politically constructed. That being said, I still use the word race as a descriptor, Sometimes you might hear these descriptions as something like this. Someone is racialized as white or racialized as fill in the blank. Though I may still use the word race in conversation, you need to know that my use of the word is not my subscription to racial or racist ideals. Race is usually used as a way to categorize people according to how they look, taking cues from phenotypes such as skin color, hair texture, facial features, etc. You know, those random boxes on forms and things. Thank you, census. Now ethnicity. That's actually a subset of race, often used interchangeably with race, but it's different. It has more to do with shared ancestry and genes, but it can include language, religion, some aspects of culture, geography, and so on. An example could be describing people who are racialized as being white. Examples of ethnicities might be folks who have Slavic, Nordic, or English ancestry, Check the show notes for a link to a New York Times article about the Biden administration's proposal for a new way to collect census data. It actually combines race and ethnicity and gives more options for ways that people can self-identify. Most interesting. Culture can be found within ethnic groups, but it doesn't have to be. Culture describes the way of life of a group of people, such as shared beliefs, expressions of art like music, dance, and also things like cuisine and traditions and practices. Think about different ways that you experience culture depending on the context. For example, work. Your work culture might be different than your culture at home or the culture in your neighborhood, and so on. Culture does not have to be tied to ethnicity. Now consider how people might be racialized or racially categorized and the assumptions that come with this racialization, or social categorization. What if the person being racialized in a certain way actually doesn't share the culture of the group with which they're being categorized? This is sometimes the case with transracial adoption. Imagine a white American family adopting an infant from someplace like South Asia. That child grows up to have the physical characteristics of their ethnic ancestry, but they might only identify with American culture, and even more specifically, the various subcultures of that family or the region in the United States where that family resides. Let's go a little deeper. People can have culture that's made up of several cultures, such as those who are third culture kids or third culture people. These might be foreign service professionals, military professionals, or even the children of expats, to name a few. And they may have lived in a variety of cultural settings throughout the world in different periods of their lives, but usually it's referring to the formative or development years of childhood. Why is it called third culture? Well, the first culture is considered to be the culture of your parents or their parents or their place of origin. Second is the current location, which is different than that of the place of origin. And remember, that current location can change. The third culture is considered to be the combination of these things, which could include cultures of several places. Make sense? Now let's talk about nationality. I've been asked about my nationality, even though I know the folks asking really mean my racial or ethnic ancestry. But nationality is all about your citizenship. It is your citizenship to the nation to which you belong. Consider expats or expatriates, for example. They might hold a passport from the United States, but perhaps they reside abroad in another country. Here's another puzzler for you. Consider a person with African ancestry who holds a U.S. passport and practices typical American traditions, but they live in Australia. Can you see all the differences? Finally, I want to talk to you about terms like black versus African American or white versus Caucasian. Let me first start by saying you can use whichever terms you want. There's nothing right now that says one is better than the other or one is more appropriate than the other. It often comes down to preference. It also has nothing to do with what is politically correct or not politically correct. Different folks hold different preferences. I just want to give you my take on this since you're going to hear me use these terms throughout the episodes. Most often you'll hear me use the terms black and white to describe groups with African ancestry or those with European ancestry. I do sometimes say African American. It kind of depends on the situation. Not every Black person is from Africa, though many are part of the African diaspora. There are plenty of Black folks who don't identify with Africa at all. In fact, I think using the term Black is actually more inclusive than African American. Jesse Jackson made the term African American more popular in the 1980s, even though it really was around for at least 200 years before that. Well, why was it embraced in the 80s? Jesse Jackson and some others pointed out that other ethnic groups in America all had reference to a land outside of the U.S., and it was attached to their identity, like Chinese American or Italian American, and so on, whereas Black only evoked thoughts of skin color, or on a social level, perhaps the side of town you lived on. Redlining anyone? Anyway, I do not personally have ties to Africa, but like many others, I am interested in my ancestry which is African. I think of people who immigrate from Africa and become naturalized citizens of the United States. I think of them as being African American, or perhaps even children who might be first-generation immigrants. Those of us who don't have ties to Africa, but have ancestry and we're here because of the transatlantic slave trade, I just think of us as black folks. When it comes to white versus Caucasian, why do I use the word white instead of Caucasian? Well, The term Caucasian came from the 1700s. Johann Blumenbach was one of those anthropologists that I talked about earlier, visiting around the world and learning about people. While he was visiting the Caucasus region, which lies somewhere between Russia and other countries in the Middle East, like Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and so on, Blumenbach saw the people there. He described them to be amazingly beautiful or something like that. Well, the term Caucasian was one of the five racial groups that he used as classification because of that region. The others were Mongolian, Malayan, Ethiopian, and American. Here's how he broke it down. To him, Caucasian folks represented those that he thought of as white. He called Mongolians yellow and said it referred to all East Asians. Malayan were considered to be brown, and they were described as those with southeastern Asian or Pacific Islander ancestry. Ethiopian or black people were those that he identified as being in sub-Saharan Africa, and he thought of the American or red race to include the indigenous people of America, the Native Americans. Once in a while, I'll talk about honorary whiteness. There is one association to that term that refers to the privilege given during apartheid in South Africa, but here on Outer Colors and likely other contexts that you may encounter, Honorary whiteness refers to the groups of people that are not monoracially of European descent, but who are able to adopt the social privileges afforded to white people in the U.S. I sometimes call this a guest pass to the in-group, people who may have some proximity to whiteness and who may experience some of the social racial privilege that comes with this proximity to whiteness, but still experience some degree of marginalization at the same time. Check out work from Eduardo Bonilla-Silva to learn more about racial social hierarchy, particularly in the United States. He has written about this theory of social hierarchy in his book called Racism Without Racists, in which he breaks down the tri-racial structure as being whites, being composed of traditional white European immigrants, and those who are multiracial but visibly pass as white, including folks who are Latino or Latina, And then there's the collective blacks, which he describes as black and brown folks, including, in his words, African-American, Vietnamese, Cambodians, Laotians, and maybe even the Filipinos. But the honorary whites are considered to be Japanese, Chinese, Koreans, South Asian, Indians, Middle Easterners, and most Latinx folks. This also includes most multiracial Americans that wouldn't be considered white or wouldn't pass as white. Remember when I say that race isn't binary? Honorary whites aren't considered black nor white, but they are afforded most of the social privileges that whites enjoy without being truly accepted into the white community. Understand now that I'm speaking very generally. I don't mean this to be true of every person in every group, but I wanted you to have an understanding of what I mean when you hear me use that term, honorary white. All right, so what's with all this talk of whiteness and proximity whiteness? Well, unfortunately, Western history, particularly European and American history, is largely anchored in colonialism with white supremacy as a driving force. And despite what many people believe, we are not post-racist America. It's just there, y'all. That's not to say that I'm trying to play oppression Olympics here on OTC, but it's good to understand how all of this manifests in our everyday experiences. One way this plays out is in how we present ourselves at work. Have you ever heard of code switching? Like, When people change the way they look, speak, or behave depending on the context of where they are or who they're with? It might have to do with power dynamics in general, but the point is, since whiteness has been the metric for what's deemed professional or appropriate or civil for so long, sometimes we look to those standards as the only way to be. Who says that straight hair is professional? Who says we have to talk a certain way and keep our voices at a certain volume? take a moment and think about what you have been conditioned to understand and believe about the standards of professionalism. Why are tattoos not professional? Why are piercings not professional? Why do we have to wear suits and ties? And why isn't pink hair okay to rock in an office? And why do all of these things have some major influence on whether or not we're promoted or get to experience upward mobility? I'll leave that for you to think about for a while. Let's move on from all of this and talk about what it means in society when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. DEI is a huge part of my life. There's all kinds of acronyms out there. JETI, REDI, DEIB, and so on. But I typically use DEI. At True Culture Coaching and Consulting, We support organizations and individuals who want to move beyond checking boxes and really make their workplaces and their practices equitable for their employees so that they can feel included and have a sense of belonging as part of the workplace culture. This work is so important to me, and it's not only been part of my lived experience. It was also the main focus of my doctoral studies. Diversity has to do with the idea of being different. These differences can be manifest in a variety of ways, like your age, your gender, ability, ethnic background, and so on. It does not have to automatically mean race, but a lot of people think of race as soon as they hear the word. Diversity should be valued because these differences allow us to be exposed to various perspectives. Pro tip hanging around with people who aren't like you really begins to minimize prejudice. The more we learn about others, even when they're different from us, the more we see people as people and not outgroup versus in group. Speaking of outgroup and in group, let's talk about inclusion. It's how you provide the space for people to weigh in and share their many perspectives. You've probably heard Werner Meyer's famous words, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. It's more than just having people there and tokenizing them because they represent different groups of people and different characteristics. Inclusion means hearing their voices, listening to them, taking their perspectives into consideration. Now let's talk about equity, which should not be confused with equality. Equity means leveling the playing field. Equality means that everyone has the same thing. Consider this example. A family of four gets all the same bike. Equality would mean providing everyone with a large 10-speed road bike, even three-year-old Alexis and her brother Brandon. While that illustrates equality because everyone has the same bike, those bikes are not appropriate for everyone in the family. Maybe even the parents need adjustments to their seats and the style of their bicycle in order to be successful riders. Well, equity is providing those appropriate adjustments or providing the appropriate things in the first place for each rider. Things like seat height, style, or just the way the bike functions. For example, three-year-old Alexis might need a tricycle, while her six-year-old brother Brandon might need a bike with training wheels. Consider a rider who may be a person that uses a wheelchair. They need a hand bike in order to equitably enjoy the activity. Providing the appropriate bicycle for each person sets them up for success. It levels the playing field. Now apply that to work or apply that to your everyday life. How many times do we try to make everything the same for everyone when really we need to be making it appropriate and equitable for everyone? No matter what you look like, where you're from, or who you are, We at Our True Colors are here to celebrate each other. We're also here to learn from one another. You are all welcome here. And if you dig this show, I recommend you check out our new show, The Culture Clinic, to expand and apply some of these concepts to the workplace. I also recommend that you head to truecultureconsulting.com to learn more about applying the principles of DEI to improve your workplace culture. Come along on the journey, y'all. I am so glad to have you here. In the meantime... Be safe out there. Share a smile with someone and please find a way to make someone feel welcome. You've been listening to our true colors.